Welcome to Unlearn, where we talk to industry leaders about unlearning how we go to market. I'm Kelly Sarabin, and I run tech partner enablement and advocacy at HubSpot. And I'm Asher Matthew, co-founder of Partnership Leaders. The old ways of going to market are getting more expensive and less effective. To thrive in an era of digital transformation, you have to go to market differently. Let's find out how. Hey, everybody. We're back with another episode of the Unlearned Podcast. Uh, we were just joking because this sounds like if you're a board member at HubSpot, you can definitely need to be on the Unlearned Podcast. So we have another uh, person who's affiliated with uh, with uh, uh, HubSpot and it's somebody that I've known for a very long time. And we'll probably cover a little bit of like how our journeys have overlapped in this one. But David, welcome to the show. Do you want to just take 30 seconds to just introduce yourself and we'll dive straight in? Yeah. Hey, Asher. Great to see you. Um, I'm David Meerman Scott. I, I worked in the financial information business for 15 years, got fired, and um, 21 years ago started my own business writing uh, books. I've written um, 13 books, um, several international bestsellers. My books are in 30 languages, um, and then uh, spent a lot of time on the speaking circuit and have been advising emerging companies um, such as HubSpot um, and many others uh, around their go-to-market strategies. I'll, le- I'll lead us in. So a number of years ago, I was super passionate, as I am right now, about helping emerging leaders or future leaders become leaders. And at one of the Microsoft's Worldwide Partner Conference, the executives at Microsoft were super gracious to give us five sessions. And it was me, it was Justin Peary, it was another uh, amazing partner leader as well. Uh, I forget her name, this is gonna be, this is gonna haunt me. Uh, but there was three of us and we're like, let's put this session together. And David had just introduced the word newsjacking in the world. And I'm like, wow, this is like the thing to learn. People should definitely learn about marketing. And my views back then, which are the same right now, were every person should learn about marketing. And so, um, so, so we had two That can people. be a little dangerous, though. Amateur marketers can be the worst. No, no, no. no. Wait, wait, wait. There's a journey here, right? Don't kill the story. Armchair right? marketer <laughs> like Asher. So, so we had two. We had Steve Clayton, who basically is running all of corporate comms, uh, I would say, or is the chief storyteller at Microsoft. And David was super gracious to, to spend some time with us. The thing I'll tell about David is we actually... Uh, goofed up a little bit at the conference and we kind of had our timings mixed up. So David landed an hour before our session was going to go on. And I didn't even know. Yes, yes, exactly. Was, and I was I was in my my gross travel clothes. Totally, totally, totally. And he's, he's wearing these cargo pants that are like, I'm like, what color is these pants? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's, that's my, I want to be comfortable in the airplane pants. And exactly. I was at the hotel about to check in and and you called me as I remember correctly, and you said, yep. "Dude, you're on in ten minutes." And I'm yes. like, "I'm not on in ten minutes. I'm on tomorrow." tomorrow. Yes, no, exactly. you're on in ten minutes. Which was yeah. Asher's mistake, by the way. No, no, no. I actually, that, that one. This, I've made a lot of mistakes, but that was not me. But I will tell you, I definitely learned what the black badge at Microsoft conferences gets you. It gets you access to everything. So if you're ever at a Microsoft conference and you have a black badge. Like it can like it it is like the magical badge of the, yeah. of, the of the conference. So That's David so basically funny. jumps, comes straight to the conference. We get him up, and like he's such a pro, does not miss a single slide. Gets a standing ovation from the whole crowd. It just walks out like 
It was just lunchtime, you know? And then I'm like, what the hell am I going to do now? I was planning to be here for like two more days. <laughs> like, I'm done. I can go home. I actually did. I did, I did hang around for a couple more days. It was a great event. I always, I always love WPC, Microsoft Worldwide Partner Conference. It's really great. Yeah. So to just give you, catch you up a little bit on the story. So David, I ended up creating with a couple of really amazing people, Partnership Leaders, which is the organization focused on elevating partnerships around the world. And uh, and Kelly, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days, just so David has an idea? Yeah, I lead um, tech partner enablement and advocacy at HubSpot. So getting our tech partners connected with our sales, CS, solutions partner, um, and then a little bit of the two-partner motion, how you engage, attract more partners. Awesome. That's great. Love it. So if it wasn't clear, this is a very partnering uh, podcast, but what's top of mind for you? Tell us that. I don't know, I don't know how we're going to get um, get the great conversation in just uh, another 40 minutes or so. We could probably talk for five hours. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally, totally. All right. Well, tell us what's on top of mind for you, David. Uh, you know, I've been thinking like probably every marketer on the planet about AI recently. And um, of course... ChatGPT has been the impetus for a lot of people to be thinking about AI because it's sort of the first way that you can really test this stuff. But I, my interest in artificial intelligence goes back um, pr at least five years, and I've been writing and speaking and using AI for a long time. Um, and it's like this really interesting moment where all of a sudden the rest of the world is getting caught up. Yep. And I think that most people are missing an incredible opportunity. And that is um, to use AI with their own data. So um, if you think about the usual use case of ChatGPT, it's um, using, and I, and I always think, by the way, of, of artificial intelligence as two things, data and math. Always be thinking whose data is it and whose math is it. And so with, with ChatGPT, and that's what everyone's talking about, um, it's ChatGPT's math and public internet data. So I think what's more interesting is the idea of how you can take the um, AI math and apply it to your own data and figuring out ways that you can manipulate the things that are in your proprietary database, whether that's as a marketer um, taking like, and I've actually done this. I took all of my blog posts for over 19 years, 1,598 blog posts, as well as um, six of my books, drop them into a proprietary database and I run ChatGPT over the top of it. Wow. And so I use that myself i i'm not i haven't released it to the public but i use that myself to generate all kinds of interesting things but it's using my own data it's not yep. i'm pulling data from the public internet so I, so that's that's what's just been rattling around my brain recently and um and i love um chat spot from hubspot the idea of figuring out how you can put um a ai engine on the top of your crm data that's another great example of this yep. idea of how you can take um, these new tools of artificial intelligence and apply them to your own data. And I know Kate from Lately was on your program um, yep. recently, and that's exactly the, the service that Lately does. Is, is yep. uh, And I'm also on Kate's board, is, um, is provide this interesting idea of putting artificial intelligence on the top of your own data. 
Yeah, quick PSA. This podcast is not sponsored by HubSpot, even though it may look like it. So it's really <laughs> in my thing, you know, like we really wanted to kind of explore, go, go to market, but it's uh, super interesting. Like, go ahead, Kelly. I, I know you have a comment, but then I definitely have a comment. Yeah, I have before. so many questions, but um, I want to talk about the tactical side of that really quick because I think one of the interesting things about how this evolves is who has access, right? I think um, how we move forward and go to market is how many people are using these tools. So when you're saying that you're dumping all of that sounds pretty high volume amount of data into chat GPT, um, where and how are you actually doing that? Is that something that is now accessible to everyone? Is that that minorly paid version that they've released or... Um, I'm using a separate database that then is using the ChatGPT technology to access that database. So it's a closed database. It's not um, something that's becoming um, available to other people because although my my um, 19 years of blog posts are already public and already visible to yep. um, ChatGPT and other large language models, um, my books... Um, probably are, but aren't supposed to be. <laughs> I, say, I say probably are because I know that there are websites that pirate um, yep. books like mine. And I've, you know, very pretty frequently get a Google alert saying, David Meerman Scott, and I click it. And it's basically um, uh, one of my books that's been um, illegally put onto the internet. Um, and so um, I'm not putting anything that if it weren't closed would freak me out because I think the idea, and there's some, some services out there now that you can upload your emails, you can upload your text messages, you can upload your client data into the cloud and then use AI to access that to, yep. um, to, to learn things about your own life. That scares me. Um, I don't want to do something like that. I mean, imagine a, a super private text with somebody that all of a sudden is up into the cloud somewhere. Even if the company says it's secure, that's not something I would trust. However, my blog posts are already public. My books, um, nothing proprietary in the books. They're all out there. Um, and and in fact, if you dig dig deep enough into the the dark web, you can find the books already on the public internet as well. It's, and are you worried about your books being taken by AI and essentially regurgitated? Because we've seen this in music recently, right? They're having music that from AI that was put out and the artists are upset because it basically sounds too much like them. Do you have any concerns that feeding this into AI models, they're going to ultimately be able to turn around and be a better you outside of your permissions? Um. I'm a little bit worried about it, but I feel like it's it's the future. And so I'm kind of putting that stuff out there. You know, I, I've done a couple of experiments where I'll go to one of the public chat, um, sorry, one of the public models like ChatGPT, and I'll type in what is newsjacking. Bang, it's essentially my words, but not my name against it. So it's already happening. Um, it's already happening because I have, I personally and people like me, probably both of you as well, have so much stuff already on the public internet. Um, you know, as soon as this podcast is released, it's out there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sure it's words, but uh, you can pop a transcription AI engine on the top of it and bang, that text is out there. So um, I think it's already there and I'm not really worried about 
my public content. I, yeah, I, I am worried and have not uploaded my private content, my private emails, pr sharing private emails with other people, sharing private texts with other people. That ha that I have no plans to upload, even though there's some use cases where it would be really interesting to have that all on top of a um, uh, an interesting AI engine. I'm not planning to do that. Yeah, it, it, it really brings the... When I was 17, what would my younger self tell me? Tell my future self question. If that was ever a question, that would be a use case for that. But um, <laughs> you could, yeah, you could. You, say, well, you know, depending <laughs> depending like, on how big your email self, database is. Exactly. <laughs> what, what, what was I saying back then? Oh my exactly. god, what scary is that? <laughs> on on the on the lately podcast that we did, you know, with Kate, um, we actually talked a little bit about private AI, and and I and and. And that's you're absolutely right. That's exactly where we're going because there is private data that I have that I actually don't want to put on a public cloud, right? Let alone a private cloud, right? So it's the the AI movement may actually create a lot more on-premise applications than cloud applications. We'll see where this 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 ends up, but the value. Of uh, you know, because there's a bunch of conversation around like, hey, people lose jobs, this happens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then right. I'm thinking, there's a lot of IP that's already in the large amounts of data that's stored inside of companies, and that's actually a new product offering for them because they can tell what happened in the past, what we're fe fe uh, facing in the present, and they can actually predict. Like for example, um, Avalara, the company that I was with, has like. 20 years of commerce data. Right. And this is right. like transactional commerce data, right? This is like right. when the transactions are happening in the ERP products, real time, you can see it, right? Yeah, That's and I mean, exactly. And so two things come to mind there. Number one is that um, a lot of companies who have um, cloud-based, you know, SaaS-based services um, have a secure way to store customer data. Um, it is stored in the cloud, whether it's with with AWS or somebody else, that data is stored somewhere. Um, so there's already the precedent for data to be securely stored somewhere. Yep. Um, even very, very, very highly proprietary data like client information to be stored somewhere and then used with AI. But but I think as a marketer, because this is, um, you know, we're, we're talking about some marketing ideas here. How cool is it if you have the type of company that generates data that might be interesting? I'll give you an example. Um, uh, last week, I was talking to the CEO and CMO of Haggerty Insurance. They're the largest classic car insurance company in the world, publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And we were talking about how cool would it be to stick AI on the top of all of their proprietary data. Now, I don't mean proprietary in the sense of client data, but proprietary in the sense that they know the value of classic cars, um, and they also have history of the values of classic cars. And they all already provide that data to members of the Haggerty Drivers Club. There's um, over a million members of the Haggerty's Driver Drivers Club. So I happen to have a 1973 Land Rover Series 3. And if I want to see um, in a historical chart what the value of a car like mine has been worth um, over the past number of years, I can see that. And that's based on actual insurance values 
of Haggerty insuring that car. That data already is, exists for Haggerty. They already have that. It's already made public. It's already a form of marketing for them to provide that data to people. But imagine sticking an AI engine over the top of it. How cool yep. would that be to be able to do um, interesting one-off queries of, you know, how, ha how has um, a Land Rover changed in value versus a Jeep versus a Bronco? I just made that up. But something that doesn't already exist that you could create uh -huh. just, by, just by typing it into an AI engine. I think that's, that is the future of companies that have interesting proprietary data is how do they unlock that for marketing purposes. Now, just to like plus double click on your example, right? The person who is feeding that data in is a domain expert. The person who gets the insight out is also a domain expert, right? And where I'm going with this is, would because there's, again, the fear of this is that the people start losing jobs, right? Yes. And I'm like, I don't think that's actually true. Like there may be some low level jobs that like, like the workloads get shifted around, but the domain experts are still needed to take the insight and then do some validate it and then do something with it. Oh, there's I, I, um, no question that people will lose jobs. No question about it. But it tends to be the jobs that AI are, is already very good at. Um, so if your job is writing headlines at a newspaper, yeah, you, yeah. Should, you should be scared. <laughs> yeah. If your job, if your job is writing obituaries, you should be scared. If yeah, your job yeah, yeah. is um, low-level accounting, you should be worried. Um, there's a lot of jobs that I think will will eventually disappear. However, there's going to be new jobs created. So just like you said, if you have some specialized um, knowledge, um, you will be able to figure out how you can be even more valuable than you are now if you begin to learn about how you can apply these artificial intelligence tools on the top of your specialized knowledge. And, yep. um, you know, what I, what I say to marketers who ask, um, and I have to credit my buddy Paul Reutzer at the Marketing AI Institute for yep. initially um, sort of triggering this, this general concept in my mind is that um, if you're a marketer, you may not lose your job directly to AI, but if you're a marketer who doesn't understand AI, it's almost certain eventually you will lose your job to a marketer who does understand AI. Yeah. But, but today to in like, let's call it reasonably sized companies and not, or, or, or any size of company, a lot of the marketing is outsourced to an agency. And then that agency outsources it to a, another agency, which is somewhere <laughs> around the world, who then is already using AI to do the work. And so by the time that AI application makes it into the enterprise, it's going to be it's going to be some time. Like, uh, like, but but I, I feel like, well, I which job I, would, would be would be lost then. I disagree. I think that um, that. CMOs, VPs of marketing, directors of marketing are scrambling to understand AI themselves because they need to figure out what they're going to say to the CEO and to the, um, and to the board and to investors and, and, and so on about what AI means for their business. Um, it, it, it is too big right now to ignore. 
And I would also argue it's way too big to just outsource to an agency. And, and even if you do outsource, I, I should, let me take that back. Sure, you can outsource to an agency, but not outsource to an agency without an understanding of what the agency is doing. Like, for let me give you an example of that. Yep. So, um, uh, you know, imagine you're in a public relations agency and um, your job traditionally has been to take a, a public relations brief, which is created by the company. Hey, we're launching a new product. Um, here are the uh, product attributes. It's going to be launched on June 1st. Um, here's a quote from a customer. And the job of the PR agency is to, number one, create the press release, draft the press release, and number two, create a list of the media that they want to target that press release to. Um, maybe that took a staffer a week to do. And then maybe, including the markup, that costs the company $10,000. Yep. Um, you can do that task in one minute with AI. You yeah. can create a value, a, a, a very, very good press release just by pushing a button on an AI. You can create a list of media to contact just by pushing a button on AI. So it's the, it's the head of public relations or the, uh, the head of marketing who doesn't understand AI that's paying $10,000 a minute to their agent agency yeah. and those those people will be out a job, yeah, out yeah, totally. job. i mean th there's the uh, i'm i'm about oh. to say something that's going to be <laughs> what you're going to you're going to turn off more of our audience Asher likes to lose <laughs> no, audience members every episode <laughs> by saying and something like, offensive our, our follower count keeps going down we got to go the other way <laughs> Asher said if you had more than two kids you're a problem <laughs> Okay. <laughs> That's politically correct. <laughs> I try I try my best not to put my, my foot in my mouth in that way, but I'll let, I'll let you do it if you plan on doing it again. This podcast is really just for Kelly and I to unlearn all the bad things that we've learned, basically. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we just come on to ourselves. No, but, but you are right, though. The But the person, right? Think about this way, right? The person that was put into this spot to figure out and go pay ten thousand bucks a minute to the agency <laughs> is because the sheer amount of like pressure on them to produce growth was so high that they can't even like think. Yes, and so then they're like, okay, well, my my natural thing is I can run two experiments. I can put ten thousand dollars here and ten thousand dollars here. One of them is gonna work. I'm not gonna get fired, so I'm I'm fine, right? That situation is different now where, yes, we like growth, but we like profitable growth. That doesn't mean you go have four different types of customers, seven different types of partners, right? And like just like dial it in so it's repeatable revenue that slowly grows. And let's just make sure we're building a real business, right? In that yeah. world, the exec marketing executive actually has a lot of time if they are coached well or they are you know, taking, taking care of their time well, they do have time to actually think about these things and, and, uh, and orchestrate them well. I, at least that's um, my opinion. I, I think there's some truth there, but uh, I w if I were a CEO and I were um, looking over my shoulder at my CMO, or if I were a CMO looking over my shoulder to the people who are working for me who are uh, responsible for the different sectors of marketing, whether that's event marketing or demand generation or partner marketing, whatever it might be. Um, 
I would want to know how they're using artificial intelligence tools in their job, every single one of those people, because I know I would, I would be worried and um, I, would be, I would be assuming that all my competitors are already doing that. Yeah. You know, so, so let's say you're in a market with f- five competitors. Um, you can be assured that the other guys are trying to figure out what AI means for them. And I would want to be understood how I'm going to be the first one out of the gate on this stuff so that I don't get left in the lurch when, um, when the inevitable happens and it will happen that these things will be over the top of so many different marketing activities and public relations activities and sales activities. Okay. I'm going to make one comment and then I'm going to stop for for Kelly to like take the conversation. Yeah, And you, you asked me what was on my mind and and we've already just, um, I know, I know know, this this is a half half an hour, which is cool because it is what's on my mind. Yeah, 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 You know, this podcast is designed purely for that. That's why we don't have any agendas on this, but I hope the, the AI bonus doesn't come up, right? Because here's what I'm thinking as you're saying that a lot of finance teams are actually bonused on, or maybe some of them are bonused on how much they can save a company, right? Yes. So now if I'm the CFO and I'm listening to what you just said, I'm like, oh, fantastic. You know, I was going to cut marketing spend by 30%. Now I just can cut it by 47%. And the other 17% is the AI bonus. And you figure it out and just let me know. Uh I would quit um, because I don't, I mean, yet, yes, there are places that AI can save money. Yes. And um, if you're working for a, um, a company that's owned by private equity, yep. they, they will want to use AI to cut costs. No question about it. But if, um, in a regular kind of company, either maybe it's venture funded, maybe it's already public. Yes, cutting costs are important, but I think AI has more of an opportunity to help on the demand gen side, to help on creating the kinds of products that customers want to buy, um, to do lots of other things that are more interesting for a marketer than just figuring out how you're going to cut some cost out of your marketing budget. Kelly, you were going to ask something. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, so as we all know, these tools are rapidly evolving and as, as well as their access. But let's just look at like 2023. I'd, I'd love to dig in. Um, it's kind of related to what Asher said is, is what can businesses realistically look to do with AI in 2023? And I think one of the things you laid out that is related to the cost is a lot of these menial tasks can be replaced by AI, whether that's coming up with the headlines that work on a LinkedIn post, or whether that's um, give me all the publications I should pitch this particular article to. Blogs, a lot of blog content right now is just terrible B2B content that could easily be replaced by AI um, for the quality. So I think you have that kind of... um, removal of a whole bucket of tasks that marketers are doing today, they should no longer be doing and they don't right. have to be doing. And and you can put that into your company pretty quickly. Um, the other thing I think you mentioned, which is super interesting is the proprietary databases that you have because companies, smart companies already do this, right? Like you can use that um, to put it out as a marketing run. I have all this interesting data. It's going to attract a lot of new prospects to you. It's in your space. And that, 
sounds like something that you could probably action in 2023. Are there other buckets that you think a company can um, take for their marketing department? Like you mentioned demand gen, right? So maybe here's a question for you. Like, do you think that kind of outbound motion can currently be better written by AI? Does AI know the human psychology of what is going to pull people in and when better than the marketing practice that has been established over, say, 15 years as to what we think is best practice for getting people to move forward in the funnel? Uh, I think the way that I like to think of it is that um, taking an AI engine, putting it over the top of your data to create marketing content still needs a smart person to review it, to make sure it's accurate, still needs um, a creative person to make sure that it's put together in a way that makes sense, that it's telling an interesting story, that um, it's not just tossing out hallucina- hallucinations, which AI engines do, you know, bad data, wrong data. Um, you know, I- I've seen titles of my own books attributed to other people, you know, wait, wait a minute, I wrote that. Um, you know, so uh, you need to, you need to have fact checking. There's, there's things that has to happen, but, but imagine an AI engine is an enormous team of, of people creating first drafts, really, really good first drafts. You know, ima- imagine um, that in, you know, let's say 10 years ago, you would hire a hundred interns to look through your database of content and create net new blog posts um, while they're working for you for the summer. And maybe over the course of the summer, they could generate 30 each. Now you can do all of that with AI, and you, but you still, just like that intern, you still need to look over the shoulder and make sure that this thing is something that's worth putting out. Um, I think the idea of using artificial intelligence to create longer form content or shorter form content, or it's freaking brilliant at creating metadata for blog posts. I mean, you take a draft of a blog post and say, write me the headline. Bang. It's the, it's can be really good, way better than I can do. I'm a terrible headline, headline writing, (laughs) Or, or it can create the metadata paragraph. It can create the search terms that you should put along with it. So many things that were manual tasks that it can do, but it does need humans, at least at this point, um, to make sure that it's not pushing out something that is grossly inaccurate or, um, um, or in some way not on brand with the company that's going to push the button to eventually publish it. So hearing that's really interesting because what I'm seeing now too potentially is like a glut of content, right? And we already yes, kind of live are, in this world. It's already creating that. I mean, there is so much AI generated crap out there right now. I mean, you know, it's everywhere, you know, and, and imagine, oh my gosh, I'm, I, my brain hurts thinking about it. Imagine how bad the spam problem is going to get. It's terrible now, but imagine how awful the spam problem is going to get because the AI engines are going to figure out how to beat the spam blockers. And all of a sudden you're going to be getting 400 spam emails and it's, it's going to be terrible. It's, it, it is hap- going to happen, I believe. So is event marketing and community marketing getting a, a boon here because that's already happening 
Asher and I just ran a survey with Pavilion on um, kind of how these different channels are changing. And the marketing leaders were saying networking and communities and partners are having a much bigger influence. And I think part of that is because of the noise of, of the content and the email and the text and the spam. And if we do get this content, like if every content marketer who's a strategist can now put out 30 articles a month instead of five, um, are we going to be pivoting to these other more human to human um, marketing channels? I'm glad you asked that um, or said that because um, I think you're right. And uh, I, uh, my latest book is called Fanocracy. Um, I wrote it with my daughter um, and it is exploring this exact idea, the idea of human connection and how um, so many companies have done a great job at building fans. And that's because they've, they've created a human interaction um, with, their, with their customers and turned those customers into fans. So I, I actually think you're, you're, you're absolutely right there. And that as the online channels become number one, more crowded, which you did mention much, much more crowded and, you know, the, the, the marketer who could do five blog posts a month is now doing 30 blog posts a month. That's happening already, beginning to happen already. But then the other aspect of that, which I've been writing about now for a long time, for three or four years, is the social media channel is becoming increasingly more polarized. And, um, you know, it's the red team against the blue team. It's the people who believe vaccines are safe and effective and those who believe that they're, um, they're not. And the, um, those kinds of things are increasing. And that polarization in the next U.S. presidential cycle um, leading up to 2024, you think it was bad in 2020? 2024 is going to be appalling. And Facebook and Instagram and YouTube are already absolute cesspools of polarizing <laughs> content. They're going to be much, much worse when you take polarized content and, and add AI-generated polarized content on top of it. So what's the, what's the solution? Well, you can choose not to go to the social networks. That's one choice. Um, you can choose not to open the emails that, gonna, that are going to start to flood your inbox. That's another choice. But I think you've hit on something, Kelly, and, and, and I have been spending a lot of time on this idea of, of the genuine human connection of how you can bring, literally bring people together. And um, those of you who are listening can't see this, but over my shoulder, I've got a whole bunch of Grateful Dead concert photos because I'm a massive fan. I've seen um, the Grateful Dead or the bands with the members of the Grateful Dead that followed the death of Jerry Garcia almost a hundred times. I wrote a book called Marking Lessons from the Grateful Dead with my buddy, Brian Halligan, the co-founder, um, former CEO and current executive chairman of HubSpot. And, and part of the idea of why we love the Grateful Dead, Brian and I, is because it's a community. It's a group of yes. physical people, <laughs> you know, and I can go I'm to a great community. Like, you don't have to preach to me. <laughs> I can go to a Grateful Dead concert. I know every, I, I, I don't even, even if I don't know those people, uh, I have an instant connection. And we were talking about um, Microsoft Partner Conference when we started yep. the, the show. Another great example, you know, it's tw last I heard 25,000 people go to that event and you instantly have a bond with anyone in that in that building. And I sit down for lunch. I don't know the person next to me. 
but I have a bond because we're both Microsoft soft partners or part of that partner ecosystem. Um, and that is super valuable stuff. So hundred percent uh, with you on that, Kelly, I agree wholeheartedly. I know we have four minutes left, but I have one super interesting question to ask. How was writing a book with your daughter? Like what was the high point and what was the challenging point? So interestingly, we, um, we both came to the same idea that as we were just talking about this idea that the online channel was become, becoming crowded and the online channel was becoming, um, polarizing. Um, and this was six years ago when we first started seeing that at the same time, I said, Oh my God, I love the grateful dead. I love to surf. Um, and she said, I love Harry Potter. I love um, Korean pop music, K-pop. Um, and and like she's dig, she's in many ways digs in deeper than I do into her fandom. She wrote an 85,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. Put that out on a fan fiction site and it's been downloaded thousands and thousands of times. And she just wrote the very first um officially sanctioned by a, a K-pop band graphic novel, which is coming out this summer. Um, uh, super interesting. It was written up in a lot of publications, Variety and all these other publications. Um, so she's, and, and she's an emergency room doctor. So she's. <laughs> wow. Dead. This person sounds exceptionally impressive. Good job. This person, this person, my daughter, Rachel, very, very impressive young woman. She's yes. Um, she is not only a, a writer um, and a fan of K-pop and Harry Potter, but also an emergency doctor. Anyway, um, um, it was a, fabulous experience to write fanocracy with her because number one, she's a better writer than me, <laughs> but number two, it was a great way for us to come together as father daughter uh -huh. after she had actually become an adult. When she's, when we first started writing, she was just starting medical school. She's in the first year of medical school. And, um, and so we realized that for this writing team to work, she had to be able to tell me my writing sucked. She, I had to be able to be willing to admit that, um, hey, um, her ideas are some of her ideas are probably better than mine. And so that was a great thing because prior to that, it was like, you know, I'm the dad, I pay the bills, I'm the boss. I mean, I was never quite like that, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, and we became full equals and full equal partners in the project of writing this book. So that was really interesting. The other thing that became super interesting about writing the book is we originally did one voice. So we wrote um, in kind of the, you know, we, you know, we did this, we did that. And, and it was a neutral voice trying to take a middle-aged white Harry Potter, uh, middle-aged white Grateful Dead man together with a mixed race um, uh, she's half Japanese, mixed race, millennial woman who loves Harry Potter and K-pop and turn that into one voice. It did not work. Yeah. There is, that does not intersect. Well, I think AI could do that for us. We got to <laughs> put that in the prompt. Yeah. If you, if <laughs> you do a prompt, out. Write, write a, write a book halfway between a, a middle-aged white Grateful Dead fan and a, and a, and a, and a, and a mixed race millennial, um, Harry Potter fan, it probably could. But what we ended up with, which was great, was she wrote half the chapters, I wrote half the chapters, and we put our byline on each chapter. 
And so that ended up being fabulous because you can see her voice, you can see my voice. And then when we read, uh, when we read the audio book, she read her chapters, I read my chapters. So that worked out really great, but, um, it was a fabulous project for us to come together and it did well. It hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. So I'm, we're, we're both really proud of what we were able to accomplish. Super. Well, David, as you said, we could probably spend we could hours. Keep going. Talking, we could keep going. But I want to be respectful of your time. So thank you so much for coming on the show and engaging in an amazing conversation with us. Uh, we ho- will hope to bring you back at some point in time after we get to the rest of the board members of spot. I don't want to piss them off, you know. <laughs> so, nice. This but, is great. This is great fun. I love it. I'm, I'm glad you didn't just have a, a bunch of questions to fire. Random questions. Yeah, it is yeah. a conversation. It's fabulous. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you so have much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Unlearn. Subscribe wherever you listen and visit unlearnpodcast.com for the transcripts.